Welcome to Dove and Dragon Radio. I'm your host, Emma Wooschuk. I'm here with special guest and returning guest, James Bastian. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me back again. Now, the last time we were here, we got to have a riveting conversation that was quite fun about the Wisconsin logging camp. Now, we're not going to talk about that, but you just finished Willa. And I- yes, it's Willa's Pursuit, mm-hmm. and it's a very loose sequel to the first book. It takes place in a very different time period, and the two books are standalone. But the research that went into book number one actually resulted in the context for book number two, Willa's Pursuit. So, okay, so since they're kind of intertwined, let's go back to book one so we understand the research that led into book two. Okay. Many years ago, I read an old newspaper article about three loggers and a boy finding a petrified body in the woods. Well, I wanted to know who this poor soul was, and I started researching. And the less information I could find, the more excited I got, because I believed that I was onto a new area of the historical record that hadn't been researched before. Well, fast forward, I did a lot of research on the loggers trying to find out any memoirs or diaries or books about them that may have referenced this finding of the body, but there was nothing. I had this box full of data regarding immigrants and loggers, but no petrified guy in the woods, only to find out that article was a hoax, that the editor needed two inches of fill back in 1930 and made up the story. It set me off on this wild goose chase. So book number one basically deals with all the research that I had regarding boys working in a logging camp, the immigration story from 1920 to northern Wisconsin. And it really isn't unique to northern Wisconsin as sort of the everyman immigrant following Mm -hmm. World War I you have so many macro events that the experiences of immigrants were relatively common in that wave of immigration. But that leaves us with the petrified body in the woods. And so I ultimately published book number one with all of that information about immigration and logging camp from a boy's perspective. Mm -hmm. Book number two, the boy is now the father of Willa. That's really the only connection. And Willa's pursuit is the petrified guy in the woods. But Willa's, why would she be, <laughs> would be, and I was struggling with that question myself. How do I do that? Do I have her randomly find the body just like the old wives tale, the, uh, uh, the urban legend had it? That doesn't sound very exciting. I'm an author. I should be able to come up with something creative. And then I read an article. This is 2014. Maybe you or some of your readers are familiar with it. Dr. Felipe Langley. She's a British archaeologist and mm-hmm. had set out to find the body of Richard III. They Brits like to know where their kings are buried. And they didn't know where he was. And so she, yeah. got, <laughs> she went on the trail and couldn't find anything. She decided she went to an abbey that was near the battlefield where he died. That's where the historical record ended, went to their archives hoping to find something There was, she walked out into the parking lot somewhat disheartened and had a sudden jolt, cold, 
sensation. She said the hair on the back of her neck stood up and she knew unequivocally she was standing on the body of Richard III. Well, it took her a year to convince her colleagues that she wasn't having a hot flash, <laughs> she wasn't, <laughs> that she didn't make this up or wasn't delusional um, to get the money and to get the permits. And they went back and dug and within feet of where she had that feeling, there was the body of Richard III. And they knew immediately, because this is bad for Richard III, but good for archaeologists, that if you remember your Shakespeare, Richard III was a hunchback. Actually, he had scoliosis. Mm -hmm. And when he was killed in the Battle of Bosworth, his bad body was badly desecrated after he had fallen. Well, his body showed the scars that would have come from a body badly desecrated. And then with the scoliosis, there was no doubt immediately when they found the skeletal remains, they had their man. Well, I wondered how often does this happen where someone has this sudden flash of information that ultimately is corroborated. And one of the things we talked about briefly last time was xenoglossia. And what's one of the characteristics that Willa has, and in fact, you had an experience with that yourself. The thing, and there are other characteristics that oftentimes accompany it. Um, there are certain similarities. One is a traumatic event. And I found a number of cases similar to Dr. Langley's that involved a traumatic event that triggered not only xenoglossia, but this characteristic of what Dr. Langley had, and that was what we, I guess we would call psychometry, where you see something or reach a place or an object and suddenly have information that you wouldn't ordinarily have. And that sometimes is accompanied with xenoglossia or retrocognition, which is you, you know something from the past that you really didn't have any access to. So Willa has a traumatic experience has those characteristics and the accompanying depression and anxiety and sets out to try to determine is she mentally ill that she has these depressions these terrors or is there something to it like in the case of dr langley where there actually was substance to her sudden inspiration okay let's stop there for a second well, we'll dummy down this so our listeners know what you're talking about because you're going to are scientific words, which are okay. great, but you know, most of our listeners don't know what the scientific words are. Sure. So, so we're going to go to okay, have you ever talked to a medium that has no? I'm going to really, really dumb this down to people. Did you ever talk to a psychic medium that has no common? knowledge of anything that happened, but it can tell you something that happened in the past, say ancient Egypt, or you and yourself have the same type of experience. You don't know what things are going to happen, what things have happened, but you have intimate knowledge of these things. That is what we're basically talking about today. You hit the nail on the head. Another example um, to, to make it um, more uh, relatable to people mm -hmm. would be deja vu. Virtually mm -hmm. everyone I've ever talked with has had a deja vu experience. I've been here before. I know something about this place. And while most of our experiences with deja vu kind of fall in the middle of the bell curve where they're kind of benign experiences, but if you go two standard deviations to the right where you have five or 8% of the people who have had experience, 
a deja vu experience that are profound, very meaningful, maybe very frightening. And so while, so you talk about the commonality, virtually everyone has had that kind of an experience and many people have had a profound experience with it. Exactly, um, I can give you an example, personal experience several years ago when I was married to my last husband, we were in a car with his parents and we're driving by this beautiful um, field nothing's there i'm like oh there used to be a insane asylum or something there this is what it looked like and they used to do lobotomies and extra never been to this part of the ohio before had no reason and is that yeah i think that's about right there's some pictures in the old archives about it never been there before i could tell you everything about it but don't ask me why well, it's a wonderful personal example, and I think many of your listeners have had similar examples, perhaps not driving by a defunct insane asylum in Ohio, but the same principle applies. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, uh, and many people that I know have reported similar experiences mm -hmm. to that. And so when those experiences, though, are deeply troubling, maybe involve some type of trauma or a terror then it becomes disconcerting and you have a depression and anxiety and sleeplessness and that starts to impact your normal activity and those are the characteristics I imparted to Willa she had a, a terrorizing experience and it set her off on the pursuit because she wanted to demonstrate was she mentally ill she was mm -hmm. just getting these delusions or was there substance to it? Could she corroborate something meaningful? In your case, if the only thing that had ever been on that site was a dairy farm, then that wouldn't corroborate you really. But when you were, but when it was pointed out that no, that's precisely what was there, that corroborates mm -hmm. your your feeling. And exactly. so she sets on the search. It, it gets a little weird when you're trying to collaborate something that happened years prior but at the same time do you want to know in willa's case she did and or is there a reason that you need to know which i'm assuming she needs to know in this book that's right and there's a third component and that is is there really a way to know that when this happens a long time ago is there enough information that you actually can find out what corroborates your your sensation your 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 interpretation mm -hmm. uh, so it's a combination of all of those things um, and it's difficult to corroborate often and now now this story we're not in the digital age yet i don't believe no so corroborating is going to be a lot harder than it is today well, that's a very insightful comment and precisely that you have to visit the archives you have to visit the place to see if in fact you have that sensation you have to visit the the location or whatever it is you you need to physically be in the library the archive or the place in order to uh, do your research and that is what she does she's on a dogged journey to place after place after place to help corroborate her, her feelings. Oh no, you mean we don't have Google to tell us what is here? 
that didn't exist, right? <laughs> it, that's right. It, it didn't exist. It, and the irony is this whole thing started pre-internet with the man in the, the petrified mm -hmm. body. And it took, with the advent of the internet, it took me two weeks to realize <laughs> It was a hoax. So prior to that, I was out kicking around like she was in my research. So in part, I included some of that uh, desperation and lack of success in her search, the pre-internet era search. That's going to make this so much more fun because one, we have a whole generation that doesn't know what it's like to be without the internet. You don't understand the research that we had to do as authors, as students, as people, pre-internet. Well, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, just I'll give one plug. We should all give archivists and librarians around the world a hearty thank you, because they're the ones who stood mind-numbing hour after hour scanning the documents that we did that we can find on a digital source uh, mm -hmm. for years in order to get all of that information on the internet. They didn't go to school to stand at a scanner, but they know how important it was that that information get be, be accessible. So we owe them a debt of gratitude. And as a researcher and as an author as you are, um, we, we really have been, been beneficiaries of their work. We have, we have to give everyone that helped contribute to the digital age their props, because if it wasn't for the librarians, if it wasn't for the researchers and everyone pouring over the information and a scanner doing one page at a time often, we wouldn't have the glorious internet that we have today. That's right. When I started this, this process, um, I was very skeptical of paranormal experiences or experiences that kind of come out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Langley's experience with Richard III set me off on subsequent research. And I was surprised at the breadth of the experiences that people have. And I, not only in your case and family and friends as I explored the frequency of it, and also found number of people who set out on a dogged search as Willa is about to do and as Dr. Langley did. Um, and I'll mention a couple, if, you're, if your listeners are interested, I'll be very brief, uh, but it'll give them something to Google if they're interested in this subject. One is James Lineger, and it's spelled L-E-I-N-I-G-E-R. And uh, James was 22 months old when he had uh, his parents took him to an, a museum which had an old airplane and he was terrorized, wouldn't stop screaming. He was going to kill him. Well, fast forward two or three years, um, they found that his this was triggered by um, a fighter pilot who was killed during the Japanese the war, the Pacific War of World War II, mm -hmm. and they happened to get it corroborated, the names and places and all of that, by going to the 50th anniversary of that battle, where now four-year-old James is telling all of these veterans what happened at this battle, and they were all nodding and saying, yeah, he was there, he did this, he did that, and there's a book, his father wrote a book about that, that case. 
there are many actual things written about this. This is scientific collaborated evidence that's out there. Now, there a is. lot of times it, it's mislabeled as fiction instead of nonfiction, but there is a lot of books that collaborate this. Well, there are. If skeptics are skeptics, Mm-hmm. And you you provide this information uh, and you provide the corroboration and skeptics will say um, that is the miracle of randomness. That is statistically you're going to have someone's going to win the lottery. So uh, some archaeologist is actually going to have that sensation. If, I mean, so they will explain that away. But if you take the approach like I ultimately did that the Pentagon took with ufos for decades the pentagon denied the existence if you saw a ufo you it was either a weather balloon or experimental aircraft or swamp gas where you were a neurotic attention seeker well they finally have come around and said you know what there are so many corroborated examples so many cases we don't know what they are but there is something and i think to to not reach that same conclusion with the paranormal experience that people are having so many cases and so many corroborated cases that in fact uh, is the uh, unrealistic assessment so denying it is less realistic than accepting what people's perception is and in the case of willa and dr langley and james lineger and the litany of other people yourself and everyone else who has had that experience it really doesn't matter what the skeptics say to us and to them that was a, that experience is as real as any other experience in their life. And it doesn't matter if people don't believe it or not that happened to them. And it's, they, they know what happened. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's going to be a personal experience. We know what happened. Your character knows what happens and the skeptics, you know, they can just do their things. We don't worry about them. That's right. (laughs) I, I wanted to say something else, but we try to keep this, PG on the show doesn't always work, but you know, you can (laughs) probably figure out what I wanted to say. But we have Willow. Now, are we going to continue in the same trajectory with the third book, maybe? Yes. Um, The third book, which has the, it's not, it's about 90% done. And we're jumping ahead again, uh, another generation. And it's her son. And her son is an archaeologist, and he ultimately is involved in the illicit trade of artifacts from the Middle East. With the fall of Baghdad, the the Museum of Baghdad was looted, and this is factual. It was looted by the mm-hmm. Taliban. They sold on the black market. They melted down a lot of the gold objects these priceless gold objects for the gold content destroyed the museum by blowing it up but um uh, the, the the story is about the tireless effort of the archaeological community from afghanistan and others around the world to try to recapture these artifacts that are on the black market or have been stolen and pillaged and are in hiding somewhere. So that's, that's, that's where that comes from. So, but it's loosely tied because Willa's son is the archeologist. Well, well, it's it's a same thread. It's one little thread that weaves everything together. They're all standalone books, but at the same time, you can see the three generations. 
Precisely. So everything's there. So you can have it as a trilogy. It's just not your typical trilogy. Yes. Um, I, and I'm going to let the, the publisher steer me in, in that direction, whether we should, it should be marketed and presented as a trilogy or whether it's better off to be uh, three standalone books. Um, uh, as an author, you may have, a, you may have well, some thoughts that would be well, useful. As a publisher, I would say this is a trilogy. Mm, okay, thank you. I would I would market it if you were one of my authors. I would market this as a trilogy. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. That that I can say as yes. an author, I would want to have it marketed as a trilogy. Okay, that's my two cents. Thank you very much. Well, it, I think you're underpricing it, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so. We're 90% done with the third book, so that should be out by next year? I would think. I, I think next year at this time uh, would be a, a reasonable projection. This book was delayed, unfortunately, uh, about nine months. Uh, the publisher uh, had some turnover issues and had COVID go through. the, And so they had to push the new releases back. And mm -hmm. I, I was a victim of that. But uh, hopefully all of that is behind us and that the, the next publication will occur in a timely fashion. We can hope. Yes. I, I, right now with everything going on, I can tell you I have about six books that have been pushed back about by six months at least. Oh. So it's going around. It's just supply, demand, and how many fingers do we actually have working? <laughs> I appreciate that. So it, it's a part of the publishing world that, the readers don't often get to see. Well, that's right. That's right. That's, and for as an author, you, you have an opportunity to see it from both perspectives. Um, mm -hmm. From an author's, just an author's standpoint, uh, it can be a, a, a quite an ordeal and quite a frustration in getting the attention of publishers in the first place. And mm -hmm. um, I think the that has in part uh, caused the proliferation of self-publishing, that um, authors are frustrated by the absence of being able to get a book published um, and may self-publish, or um, it's now a, a lot easier to accomplish that. Now, there are services and resources to help you self-publish that weren't available 15 years ago. And so the combination of those things has led to a lot of self-publication. It, that is very true. It takes time, money, and knowledge. What do you have the most of? <laughs> and that's how, what you do. That's where you go if you want. Okay, I don't have a lot of time. I want this book out tomorrow. I'm going to go to self-publish. If I have time, I'm going to solicit 200 publishers and hope that one picks me up. Well, well, that's right. It, uh, that's the route I took. I could have self-published. Um, but to be honest, I was interested in having a professional validation of the merit of the work mm -hmm. and that I read my thing, what I've, what I've written, and I have a whole different, and it's not an objective assessment. <laughs> and so even having friends and whatnot and relatives read it, you, you don't get a clean, objective, professional assessment. So I really wanted that uh, validation that there is, that this is sufficiently substantive that it should be published. 
and that's not everyone's cup of tea. And it doesn't have to be as an individual journey. Every publishing journey should be individualized. Don't listen to me and James how to publish your book. It has to be what works for you. I actually have a whole podcast on how to be a published author. And it takes self-publishing, hybrid publishing, or traditional publishing and goes across all three. You have to find what works for you. What a great resource you, you produced and made available to authors. It is a free resource. Knowledge is power. Sure. Yeah, it, that goes through your marketing plans. Even if you're a traditional published author, you still need a marketing. So it goes through everything and it's a free resource because publishing isn't just publishing. That's right. You have to do podcasts like we're doing today. <laughs> well, they're helpful. And especially when they're fun, uh, mm -hmm. uh, as this one is. And uh, so I, uh, I, I appreciate this opportunity. Well, I love having authors on here. So you get to talk about what you're doing because I, especially when you come back with three different books, I get to follow the story too. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to count that as uh, an invitation to come back a third time. And so, <laughs> Of course. I, I want to know what's going on with the archaeology because that's actually something I'm passionate about. I love going into old things and learning about it. So you hit something that I'm very passionate about. Well, we, we, have, a, we have a commonality there as, among others, but that is mm -hmm. one for sure. Yes. If I was allowed to go dig in the sand of Egypt, I would love to do that. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I, if, if I had unlimited resources, didn't care how much money I made, uh, you know, that's dig up literally the dig archaeology is uh mm -hmm. they they you just do not make a lot of money and have to travel and it's unglamorous arduous work but how fascinating yes i ever since i was a child i wanted to go to egypt just to find a plot of land and start digging to find <laughs> out what's in there there's a lot more to archaeology than this and i understand this this is my I wanted to do this wasn't me wanting to go to the pyramids to go explore them, although that would be very cool. I wanted to actually go dig in the sand. <laughs> so I cannot wait to hear about the third book because even though it's not the same, the principle is still there. It is. And the other commonality that I like to include in, in each of the books is to select a uh, time period this is just it isn't just random that it's a generation mm -hmm. it's a time period where the historical context is extremely rich in 1920 it's world war one it's the russian revolution it's the spanish flu it's the immigration it's prohibition and women's suffrage and the change of society uh, from edwardian and victorian to the roaring 20s and 1970 is the on the heels of the assassination of the Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King and racial riots and the riots on the Vietnam War, the beginning of the end of the Nixon administration. And Madison, Wisconsin, where this where the book takes place, is a flashpoint for the rioting and the protesting and whatnot, and also the evolution in, in psychology. And then 1990, 
Afghanistan is a war zone at that time, and that's where the mm -hmm. archaeology is taking place. So I try to select periods that will enrich the content of my book with with facts and with what's actually happening so that the reader can get history light. They'll read the book and actually learn something about a time period rather than think of a story and then make up the historical context to fit my story. Oh my, you're teaching us history <laughs> through fiction. We can't have that. <laughs> Don't let it get out. <laughs> But we are almost out of time. And as always, this has been fun. So where can our listeners and our viewers find you and your books? Well, uh, the books uh, are, are available on Amazon or at any bookstore. Uh, it, just, it, it either is uh, in inventory or they'll order it for them. Or any readers who have an interest in any of the research that I've done, they like or just contact me for any reason, buy a book for that matter, or have it signed or for research, they can reach me at my website, which is www.wisconsinloggingcamp.com. And there's a comment, there's a, a drop-down menu for comments, contact the author, and that's how to do it. James, did you know you don't have to put www. in front of your website now? <laughs> no. I didn't. Uh, and I, I think I'm revealing my age, although uh, the image probably does that. Well, we have a lot of listeners out there, but I like to joke around and you're one of the authors I can do that with. Well, uh, uh, that, that's good. <laughs> but thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank, me, thank you for having me back. I really enjoyed it as always. This has always been fun. And please let me know when the third book comes out. It should be out next year and we'll do another interview. Sounds good. Thank you again. And for our readers and our listeners, happy reading. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.